Thank you, choir, for that beautiful rendition of Blessed Assurance. I always feel a little bit like a hypocrite when I sing that song. Maybe you do too. Uh, This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. That is certainly an aspirational desire, is it not? Something we fall short in and yet joyfully repent towards that God would increasingly make that true in our lives more and more. Well, church, it is great to be with you this morning. I love being a Redeemer. I love especially being here on Missions Month in in March, where we think a lot about how we're called to take the gospel outward. And our family is extremely grateful for your partnership with us for almost a decade uh, as we press the gospel forward and uh, serve the gospel throughout Asia. Uh, Thank you for your prayers, uh, for your giving, for your encouragement. It is a great uh, blessing uh, to be part of your ministry here and to be your hands and feet through the nations. I do want to invite you, if you have not met me yet, if you're new here, I would love to meet you. I have a table set up, and I'd love for you to come by at the end of the service, and you can pick up a prayer card if you don't have one, or if you'd like to update it. My five kids are growing like weeds, so if you have an old one, they look very different now. Uh, And I would also invite you to come and sign up for our weekly email list. Uh, We send out specific prayer requests. We greatly value the intercession of God's people, and so we would love to have as many of you since we are your church's missionaries, praying specifically for us. So please come see me, come say hello at the booth at the end. Well, before I read our scripture text, let me pray and ask God's blessing as we continue in this most important part of our worship. Pray with me, please. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful for the gift of scripture. Next to the gift of your Son and your Spirit, it is the best thing you've given us because in the Scriptures, your Spirit shows us the beauty of Christ and our great need of Him and all that you've promised to be for us in Him and how in Him we are your body sent to our neighbors and to the nations to proclaim the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and to demonstrate it with our lives. Father, as we come to your word this morning in this high point of worship where we can hear from you, we recognize both our weakness and inability to hear in the way that you want us to hear. And so we pray that by the powerful working of your spirit this morning that you would overcome that for us, that these words that are your inspired word would, they are alive, help us to see them as alive, give us eyes to see the beauty of who Christ is, what he's done for us through our faith union with him and what he can do for our lost neighbors and our lost world. Lord, only you can do this, so we pray that you would do today what only you can do. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, let me invite you to open your Bibles and stand in the honor of the reading of God's word. If you would open to Mark chapter 5, I'll be reading verse 1 to 20. That's Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. The word of God says this, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, 
Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country, and people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid." And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, "'Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you.'" And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Friends, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Amen. Please be seated. The Lord has blessed me with a wife that can really cook, and she has welcomed our five kids into the kitchen, and they can really cook. I have a 13-year-old son, Josiah, who is quite the chef. Uh, His favorite thing is to cook all the time, but especially breakfast, and so he gives me a list of things to get at the store that he can make breakfast with, and a couple times a week, he likes to have a big breakfast beyond just the cereal and oatmeal, and so it usually involves either sausage or bacon. Uh, Always has eggs. Sometimes he'll make homemade biscuits and gravy. He's a good southern boy. Uh, Sometimes hash browns. As I think about our breakfast, there's two animals that especially make a contribution to our big breakfast when Josiah whips them up. And you've probably heard this before. There's differing levels of contribution of these two animals. Every big breakfast at the Goodrich house has eggs, and there's some hen or hens who have labored to lay those eggs. I don't know what it's like for a hen to lay an egg. I assume it's not quite the measure of a woman giving birth. Maybe there's some discomfort, but it's not a huge sacrifice for these hens to lay the eggs that feed us. But oh, that pig's a whole different story. (laughs) For him to contribute to our breakfast, and mind you, not willingly, of course, but for him to contribute to the Goodrich Big Breakfast is a sacrifice indeed, for he must give his life to provide the sausage or bacon that we enjoy The question I want to pose from this text before you today is in light of who Jesus, our glorious Redeemer, is, in light of what He's done for us, for those who take Him by faith, in light of what Jesus can do for our lost and miserable neighbors and nations, as He calls us to make disciples of all nations, as He calls us His Spirit-indwelt church to proclaim the kingdom of God, Does he expect our involvement to be more like the chicken or the pig in my big breakfast? I think a lot of professing Christians are willing to be like the chicken when it comes to their involvement and the obedience to the Great Commission. We're willing to contribute as long as it's not too painful or too costly. 
And yet I think we'll see from this text that the Lord demands more and enables more as he calls us to serve him. Though he will not always call us to sacrifice our lives, he does call us daily to die to self and to be willing, if necessary, to pay whatever cost it is to reach out to our neighbor or to the nations to whom he might send us. And so this text, I think, in light of what we're going to see about Jesus, will leave us asking a question that I hope you'll answer with your lips and with your life in the affirmative. And that is this, will you embrace the cost of ministering Jesus Christ to the least and the lost? I want to follow this text and draw out four things from this text to pray that God's Spirit would help you to answer in the affirmative with life and lips. We're going to look in verse 1 through 5 at the misery of sinners. We're going to camp out on what we experience under this cursed world. We're going to look secondly at the malice of Satan in verses 6 to 13. We have a real spiritual enemy who is doing a number in this world. That's bad news. The good news will come in verse or point three, the Messiah's salvation in verse 13 to 20. We'll look at the glorious Redeemer and what he has done for us what he can do for the lost world around us. And then we'll really drive that home in much application in the messiness of strategic ministry as we consider especially verse 13 through 20. So let's think a little bit about the misery of sinners. Look at verse 1. They, Jesus and his disciples, came to the other side of the sea, that would be the Sea of Galilee, to the country of the Gerasenes. Jesus with his disciples was going into a place that lived in utter darkness of the gospel, On the other side of the Sea of Galilee from where they came, where they ministered to the Jewish people, even there, the Scripture says, when Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God there, quotes the Old Testament and said, those who were walking in darkness saw a great light, and that was within the people of Israel. Now he's come across the sea into Gentile territory where people who had very little knowledge of God's covenant with Abraham, very little knowledge of the coming Messiah, perhaps probably no knowledge that the kingdom of God was being inaugurated as the Son of God incarnate was on the stage as the promised Christ. They were without knowledge of salvation. They were lost. They were under God's wrath with no place of escape. And now the Son of God is there to proclaim the gospel. Friends, there are still many in our world who do not know Christ and do not know the gospel Oftentimes, the least and the lost are combined. Where I've often served in India, that's often the case. The least, when we think of in terms of uh, material abundance, are often the lostest, but not always the case. You could go to Japan, one of the most developed countries in the world, and it's also the second largest unreached people group in the world. 120 million people, 99.5% who do not know Jesus. And my friends who serve in Japan say most Japanese have never met a Christian and never heard the gospel. Two to three billion people in our world who are much like these people here who are walking in darkness, and that is indeed the greatest misery, to be alienated from your Creator and to have the judgment day hurtling towards you, and you have no recourse and no help. There's also misery here. I want you to just feel the misery, especially of this Gadarene demoniac in verse 2 through 5, and look with me carefully at the text of Scripture. He's lost, of course, doesn't know the gospel Notice him in verse 3, where this man lives. He lives among the tombs. He has a graveyard residence. No one can bind him anymore, not even with a chain in verse 3. Verse 4, he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. 
and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Friends, what a miserable, pitiful picture. Can you put yourself in his place? This man who is violent and thus alienated, demonized, treated like an animal to the Jewish people as they read about this man, they would have thought this man is triply unclean. He's unclean because to a Jew, you couldn't even touch a dead body without being defiled and becoming unclean. He lived among them. He had an unclean spirit. The name itself points to it. He's demonized and he's near pigs, not a favorite animal of the Jews, especially in this time and place where it was not only an unclean animal, but a sign of pagan persecution. And notice the language of verse 4. Notice the end of verse 4. No one had the strength, and note that word, to subdue him. A word that's often used of animals. We subdue animals, but here a person is subdued like an animal. And consider how the text of Scripture describes him in verse 5. Always crying out and cutting himself night and day. His misery was unending. And whether he's cutting himself because he wants to end his life and he can't, or whether he's cutting himself because he wants to feel something in his misery and that's the only way he can feel anything, we don't know, but it had to be a miserable experience. If there was ever a case of a hopeless individual, this man was it. He could neither help himself, and the text of Scripture is quite clear that no one could help him as well. If anyone seemed hopeless, it was him. Friends, there are many miseries in our fallen world. They vary in range. Some of you have experienced them. Some of you have chronic illness, and that is a misery. Some of you have lost loved ones, children, spouses, parents, friends way too soon, and that is a misery. Some of you have been violently physically or sexually abused, and that is a terrible misery. I was in Cambodia in the middle of last year considering joining an MTW team there, and one of the team's ministry was reaching out to girls who are rescued from sex trafficking. And I was in the medical clinic run by one of the doctors on the MTW team, and there was a young 12-year-old girl uh, who they were treating, and she was thankfully just treating for, for a leg injury. And I just asked the guy, what's her story? And he said, this girl is 12 years old. At age six, she was sold by her parents to be a prostitute. And she was rescued just two years ago at age 10. And I tried to put myself, and it just, I can't even get there, the misery of a girl who's sold by her own parents and for four years daily is assaulted by men. It's, it's almost beyond belief to imagine what that young girl experienced for four years. And friends, there are people all over the world in this cursed earth who experience all sorts of misery of varying degrees like this young girl in Cambodia, like this Gadarene demoniac, and to varying degrees, some of you in here. The misery of sinners is great. It's a result of God's curse because of our rebellion. And in this case, and also in the case around us, it's not just we're under the curse, but we also have a real spiritual adversary behind it. And so I want us to consider verse 6 through 13 and look at the malice of Satan because he adds to it. Notice verse 2, when Jesus first steps on the scene, the inspired writer gives us an understatement, does he not? Here's a man with an unclean spirit. Boy, there was ever an understatement because we discover in verse 9 as Jesus is exercising these demons, it's demons plural. In fact, verse 8 says, or verse 9, what is your name? My name is Legion, 
for we are many. Now, a Roman legion was around, what, four to 6,000 soldiers. We don't know if the demons are being precise, but there's a lot of them, many of them. In fact, when they go out into the pigs, notice how many pigs are drowned into the sea. The text of Scripture tells us there were 2,000 of them. Now, from my study of pigs, which isn't extensive, but relying on others, this is an unusual activity for pigs. We know sheep are herd animals, right? One sheep will follow, or a bunch of sheep will follow one sheep, even into destruction. I was at the rodeo in the fall with my country cowboy kids, and we were watching the mutton busting. That's where people grab on a sheep, and they're six or seven years old, and they hold on for dear life, and uh, they last a couple seconds. And the sheep runs out. And it was interesting to know the the first sheep would come out, and you can imagine the sheep is terrified. There's a couple thousand screaming fans. They've just been ridden by a person. And then as that would happen, each sheep, as they got their rider dismounted, they would run to the other sheep, and these sheep would just follow each other around the arena until it was all over. That's how sheep are. But pigs, apparently, are only a semi-herd animal. They'll kind of hang out together in a herd, but when trouble comes, it's every pig for himself, and it's like, you scatter, So it wouldn't just be like one or two demons and one or two pigs and all the pigs would follow. It seems that this indicates that every pig, every single pig, was now possessed. There were a lot of demons to drive a whole herd of pigs off and destroy themselves. The number of demons reminds us that we have a whole spiritual host seeking to destroy, seeking to oppose God's kingdom, seeking to destroy mankind And notice this demon, I think he's trying to manipulate Jesus. Look at verse 7. You may note when you read the Gospels, the demons sometimes seem to have the best theology of who Jesus is. You know, the disciples are dense, and the the demons are like, you're the Son of God. In verse 7, when he says, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Our first thought is, that's that's pretty right. (laughs) That's pretty good. But most likely, what the demon is trying to do is to manipulate Jesus. And that day, the way you manipulated with magic was to know someone's name, and you could manipulate them. And perhaps it seems he's trying to manipulate Jesus to get him to do his will, even though he knows clearly that Jesus is in charge. Again, notice the language of verse 7, I adjure you by God. The word adjure is used in demon possessions when the exorcist is trying to get the demons out. If you want a textual reference, you can write down Acts 19.13 and check that out later. So it seems even here the demons are trying to manipulate and influence uh, Jesus to do what they want, which is not to be cast out, not to go into the abyss, as Luke 8 will talk about. And they're trying their best to manipulate. What we see here is a clash with Jesus and the kingdom of Satan. You see, Jesus has entered on enemy territory. Notice verse 10, they begged them earnestly not to send them out of the country. This is their land. These people were in darkness. They had no knowledge of the Savior. They were under the misery and subject to Satan and his many, many demons. And Jesus is confronting them. He's coming against the malice of Satan. David Garland, a New Testament scholar, says this, Well, Jesus embarks on a daring invasion to claim alien turf under enemy occupation and reveals that there is no place in the world into which God's reign does not intend to extend itself. The confrontation that ensues reveals that every square inch at sea and land will be contested by Satan. Friends, we have a terrible enemy. The Gerasenes were under his rule, and Satan had brought this man into a place where he was utterly dehumanized. 
utterly. Death is, it is an alien intrusion into God's good world. Death is not normal, and this man lived among death. He lived in the graveyard. We are image bearers of the triune God. We are made for community, and this man has no community because he's been cast out. He is by himself. He is dehumanized. He's like an animal who must be subdued. He's an image bearer who's meant to have dominion over the animals, and he is subdued. He's self-harming. Our bodies were made to glorify God with. Our bodies belong to the Lord. We have no right to harm them or hurt them. They're meant to be in service of our maker, and this man is cutting himself through the demonic influence. Satan hates us. Satan hated this man. His malice is incalculable. He is destructive. Even among the pigs, pigs are not as important as humans, but he destroys the pigs as well when they're in there. And friends, Satan loves to dehumanize people. He loves to influence us to dehumanize others. It's one of his greatest tricks. We see it in our world when real racism happens. There's a lot of fake racism that goes on, I understand that, but there is real racism in our world It's satanic when the Germans under Hitler can look at Jews and say, this is life not worthy of life. It's satanic when in Paul Potts, Cambodia, they can look at all the educated people and say, we don't want educated people because they're Western, we're going to kill them all. In Rwanda, when one tribe attacks another, Satan has been at work dehumanizing, making others appear in our eyes as less than glorious, dignified image bearers of the living God. I think about these young girls in Cambodia who it is the center of sex trafficking and these six, seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old girls who are abused by men, sold by their parents at times. And I think, gosh, Satan is dehumanizing. I think about the prevalence of homosexuality in our culture. Homosexuality, some of us may struggle with same-sex desires, but in the gospel there's forgiveness, there's new power in Christ to fight against those Homosexual desire and practice is something to be repented of and the power of God's Spirit, and yet our world now says, no, you must embrace it and condone it. Love is love. And to call a lifestyle that dehumanizes image bearers who were not made for that is called love. That's satanic. I think of the transgender revolution where children are being mutilated because their body, they think, whether or not what their body says That's a satanic influence. That is dehumanization. That's what Satan's all about. He wants to keep us in darkness. He doesn't want us to hear the gospel. He wants to take away every gospel seed we hear. He wants to destroy us. That's what he's about. I can't state enough from Scripture how evil our opponent is. The malice of Satan is huge. Are you discouraged yet? (laughs) Are you depressed? It is depressing. It is discouraging. It is something to lament and grieve over. And friends, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I should just say this. If you're here and you're exploring the Christian faith, I think one of the things that God's Spirit can use to convince you of the truthfulness of the Bible and the gospel and the Christian message is that it paints such a realistic and stark portrait of our world. And this is not rose-colored the Bible, you come to the Bible, you know the world's messed up, if, even if you're not a Christian, and the Bible says, oh yeah, let me show you, it's worse than you think. It's worse than you think. The misery of man is huge. The malice of Satan is great. But friends, believe it or not, there is good news for us today in this text because we have a Messiah. And we want to consider the Messiah's salvation and glory in his salvation that we see in this text. 
So let's turn to verse 13 and 20. Let's be encouraged. There's a back and forth here in verse 7 and 8 between the demons. Notice as he cries out with a loud voice in verse 7, what have we to do or what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. It looks like this is the first speaking of the demon, the first interaction, but when we get to verse 8, Notice carefully what the text of Scripture says, for he, Jesus, was saying to him. In other words, there's a back and forth. And this is interesting because usually you read the Gospels, you know how it goes. Jesus says, gone, you're gone. But apparently there's some sort of back and forth, not because Jesus is not powerful, but there's, this is a real confrontation here. This is legion. This is a confrontation between Satan and his kingdom and the kingdom of Christ. And thankfully we see that Jesus is still in charge. They still have to seek his permission. They have to beg him for what to do. Luke 8.31 says, it adds, it's not included here, but it's that they ask him, don't send us into the abyss. They know ultimately judgment's coming. It's coming. And they have to submit to King Jesus. Interestingly, as they go into these pigs that they allow them to do, a Jewish person would not have had the reaction that we probably might have when we think about the 2,000 pigs. You know, that's a lot of bacon and pork sausage for big breakfast that's, that's gone, and it's somebody's livelihood, and maybe if you're a real animal lover, you pity the pigs. To a Jewish person in the first century, it was not only are those unclean, but they'd become a real sign of pagan persecution because during that intertestamental gap, at times, pagan rulers would make them eat pig to defile them or sacrifice pigs in holy places and by this time, a pig was really a sign of opposition. And so do we not, we see the Messiah, he's confronting the kingdom of Satan. He's also confronting the influence of that and the pagan kingdoms around them by the destruction of these pigs. And notice what Jesus is able to do for this pitiful man. Remember how miserable his condition was? We looked at it in verse 2 through 5. We'll look at him now when he confronts the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Verse 15 this man who was pitiful, dehumanized in misery. It says, they, the townspeople, came to Jesus. They saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion. Look at this transformation, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They'd never seen anything like that. I mean, this, is, this guy had notoriety. Everybody knew about the demon-possessed man who lived out there. You know, parents told their children not to go near there, probably. And this man is sane all of a sudden. He's clothed in his right mind. It's like a transformation, totally. Now, interestingly, just before, when they were crossing over to the sea, if you look back at Mark 4.39, this is one of the incidents where Jesus calms the sea. Look at Mark 4.39, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Friends, there was a great tempest in this man's heart, the Gadarene demoniac. And Jesus, in his authority as the Messiah, said, Peace, be still to this man's heart. And he was transformed. The demons were gone. He follows Jesus. Notice in verse 18, he wants to be his disciple. Verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, this is after the townspeople have begged him to leave, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And no wonder. <laughs> Would you not want to be with Jesus after this? Would you not want to joy and revel in and be this one who had been able to deliver you and covered your guilt and shame and delivered you from fear of the evil one? 
And notice when Jesus sends him out and says, no, here's how I want you to follow me. I don't want you just to hang out with me. I want you to go to all the neighbors who ostracized you. I want you, look at verse 19, to go proclaim how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And does the man say no? Not at all. He goes. And verse 20 says, he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Think about this. This man has been driven from society, and now he's transformed and sent to the very people who've driven him out, the very people who'd called him names, who'd beat him, who tried to chain him, who sent him out. Now he's driven back to them. Oh, friends, we need to celebrate such a Savior. We need to pause for a moment and savor and consider the type of Redeemer that we have in the Lord Jesus And friends, I especially want you to do that if you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're a covenant kid. Maybe you've grown up in a Christian house and you're you're getting in those years as 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, later teenager. And you're really considering, do I really believe this that I've heard all my life? Or maybe you're an adult and you're exploring the claims of Christianity and you're here to see if this gospel is really good news And yet maybe you feel like the gathering demoniac in some way. Maybe the guilt is crushing. Your sense of what you've done, that's so wrong. Or maybe you feel more the shame. Maybe you're from an Eastern culture background where where shame is one of the dominant ways in which we feel alienated from God. And guilt says, I've done something wrong. Shame says, I am something wrong. Maybe you feel so ashamed that you've so dishonored And you're such in a place of dishonor, maybe from what you've done or even been done to you, that God couldn't want you. Maybe you live in fear. Maybe not so much fear of the devil consciously, but just fear of the world and what can happen to you. Maybe you fear that God would never welcome you. And friends, if Jesus can transform the gathering demoniac, he can cover whatever measure of guilt you have. He can give you and restore the honor that has been lost through your shame. He can overcome all the fears that you have because if he can do it for this man, he can do it for you. And so, friend, if you do not know Christ, I plead with you today, run to him. Put your faith in him alone as Savior, and he will forgive your sin and cover your shame and deliver you from all that you fear in him. And Christian, do you know what this means for us? Not only do we celebrate that, not only does that enliven our worship and our songs and our our sense of confidence, but what it means is we can't write people off anymore. There's no one in your school, there's no one in your neighborhood, there's no one in this community, there's no one in this world that is beyond the power of our Redeemer to forgive and transform and rescue. And oftentimes we live as if we don't believe that. And we stop praying, we stop going, we stop giving towards those things, we stop bearing witness, and the gathering demoniac reminds us there is no one that's too far gone. So I don't know who you've given up on in your life, I don't know what country or group of people in the world you've given up on, but I ask you don't give up on them. Consider who we've seen of our Messiah's salvation and begin to pray for them earnestly and seek every opportunity to bear witness to them with your lips of the good news of the kingdom come in Jesus Christ through his life, death, and resurrection, and ask that the Holy Spirit would enable you to beautify the gospel through your life and your interactions, because we have a powerful Savior who wants to and will use us, his church, to take the gospel to the least 
and to the lost. Now, to give ourselves to that, we have to embrace what this account reveals about the messiness of strategic ministry. And that's our final point here, the messiness of strategic ministry. I think this is one of the most tragic episodes in the Scripture. It's one of the most glorious with the gathering demoniac, but the reaction of the townspeople has to be one of the saddest episodes in the gospel. Let's pick it up at verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who'd had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and notice this, and to the pigs. Remember, the pigs ran off. Look at verse 17. And they began to beg Jesus, and I want you to stop there for a moment. Pretend like you don't know the story, (laughs) that we haven't read it a few times. What should they be begging Jesus for? They should say, Jesus, would you come? I have a friend. I have a neighbor who's sick. I have another friend who's demonized. They don't even have to know. They haven't heard the gospel yet. They don't know that Jesus could deliver them from eternal hell and judgment. Even not knowing that, seeing what they had done to this man, they had to have known people that were in miserable situations all around them in their family and in their communities. And they should have begged Jesus, please come. It doesn't matter what it cost us. Please come. But that's not what happens, is it? In some of the saddest words of Scripture in verse 17, they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. It cost too much to have this Jesus around. They couldn't think about the economic risk. I'm going to quote David Garland one more time. He says it well. These these townspeople do not seem to care that Jesus has such power. They just want him gone. Instead of giving him the key to the city, they give him a cold shoulder. The demons had begged Jesus to let them stay in the region. In verse 10, the townspeople now beg Jesus to leave the region. They chase off the source of their deliverance and salvation. People can tolerate religion as long as it does not affect business profits. Friends, what would it cost you to reach out to the least and lost in your sphere of influence. Students in your school, your university, workers in your workplace, families in your community, the nations that God might call and I hope call some of you to go to as missionaries. What is the cost that's before you that makes you say, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure I can embrace that. Because friends, there is a cost. There's all sorts of costs. There's financial cost, and that can be a big one. There's cost of reputation. Sometimes when you minister to the least and the lost, you lose reputation. People might not understand. There could be physical danger to ministering to the least and the lost, especially the oppressed, the refugees, the homeless, whoever God may send you to. You know, there's a lot of lost people in lost places around the world. They're not real excited when you show up to share the gospel And their governments aren't real excited that you're there. It may cost you much to take the kingdom where it's meant to go. But when we see how much Jesus loves to forgive and restore and heal and transform the least and the lost, and we recognize that he does it through us, his spirit-indwelt people, we have to be willing to face that cost. 
We have to put to death the idols that we all have, especially as American Christians of safety, security, comfort, and risk. We have so many means available to us to avoid risk, and we often do. And we shouldn't just be risky for the sake of being risky. Hear me say that. Those things are not bad in themselves. But you and I know that we easily make them idols that will keep us from embracing whatever that cost may be to reach out to the least and lost around us and to the nations. So how do we do it? How do we gladly embrace the cost? Well, I think we see a a hint in our text. Notice the reaction, the difference in the reaction between the townspeople and the healed demoniac in verse 17 and 18. Verse 17, they begged Jesus to depart. Look at verse 18. As they were getting to the boat, the man who had possessed with demons begged him something different, that he might be with him. And when Jesus sent him out, he went with gladness and joy. What's the difference between these two groups? Why is one pushing away Jesus, another wants to run to him and gladly obey him? I mean, it would have been a cost for this demoniac. People would not have gladly embraced him back in their community. First of all, they probably wouldn't have believed it. He'd probably damaged some of their property. He may have killed somebody. We don't know. I mean, he was a violent, dangerous person. People would not have gladly welcomed him back, and yet he's supposed to go towards them in obedience to Jesus. What's the difference? He knew he had a taste of the mercy of God that's only found in Jesus Christ. He had met the Messiah. He had experienced that. He had personally experienced that. And friends, that's the only thing that will drive us out to take the least and the lost to, or take Christ to the least and the lost. We have to regularly in our corporate and private worship experience the mercy of God in Christ. We have to remember that we are not so different than the gathering demoniac, that we live in a world under the curse. We experience the malice of Satan, the misery of this fallen world. We experience our own sin and shame and fear. And Jesus comes to us and he cleanses us of our guilt. He covers our shame. He delivers us from our fears. We have to taste that regularly in our worship together, in our private times, to meditate much on what the Puritans call the exceeding sinfulness of sin and then the amazing grace of God in Jesus Christ. And when that is fresh on our taste from our public gatherings, our communal gatherings, our private times, then, then we can answer that cost. We can find power in Jesus to step over and not just endure the cost, but gladly embrace the cost of ministry to the least and the lost. I might have shared this here before, I can't remember, but one of the remarkable things when you look at the spread of the gospel in the early church was exactly how it spread. They had a faithful confession that Jesus is Lord, they believed the gospel, they articulated the gospel, and one of the things that God by His Spirit used in the early church to bear powerful testimony to the gospel that they proclaimed with their lips was their great love for the least and the lost. One of the things that marked the early church in a world that was experiencing much more the effects of sin than us as far as the misery was how the church loved the poor, how the church loved those who were cast out. Christians got this reputation that they not only cared for their own poor, but even the poor of the Romans who they would cast out in time of plagues. In time of plagues, they would, people were sick, they'd cast them out and say, we don't want to have anything to do with them. It's too dangerous to be with them. And the Christians would go to those pagans and nurse them, sometimes sacrificially to their own death. 
So much so that the Roman emperor Julian in the fourth century who hated Christianity wrote this about the Christians. And he wrote it again as an opponent of Christianity. He thought the Christians were pulling people away from the Roman gods and he did not like them. And he said this about them. So remember, this is an opponent. Now he calls them atheists. So you have to know atheist equals Christians. That sounds weird. But in that day, they called Christians atheists because they worshiped an invisible God and only one God. So here's Julian in the fourth century speaking about Christians. Atheism, that's Christians, has been especially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. The godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. You see, many in the early church who'd experienced the mercy of God in Christ and dwelt by the Spirit, they confessed that with their lips and they embraced the cost of strategic ministry to the least and the lost. And God used that. God caused the kingdom of Christ through that to grow and grow and grow. Oh, friends, may God richly show us Jesus Christ as a community here. May we delight in Him each Lord's Day each day at home in our family and personal worship. And when we see our Savior is so glorious, would we feel like that gathering demoniac who has been so gloriously transformed in our faith union with Jesus Christ that we would gladly take the gospel of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ to the least and the lost in our nation, in our neighbors, and among the nations. So friends, I ask you one final time, Will you embrace the cost of ministering Jesus Christ to the least and the lost? I want you to close your eyes. And before I pray, I just want to give you a moment of silent prayer. I don't know what the Lord's doing in your heart right now through his word. But just take a moment of silent prayer, if you would, and just respond to God's word. Ask him to help you to put feet to whatever things he's convicting you about through his word. If you're not a believer here today, maybe just ask that the Lord would show himself to you and convince you that this glorious Savior is true and he's for you. Just take a moment of silent prayer before I lead us. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you, thank you, thank you for giving us such a Savior. Lord, this church is named after that Savior, the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are so grateful for those of us who are united to Christ by faith alone. We are so thankful that you have forgiven all of our sin, that you have covered all of our shame. You have ultimately delivered us from everything that we might fear. You have given us everything in your Son, Jesus Christ. You have transformed our lives that we might be restored to your fellowship, to have the greatest of privileges to know ourselves as adopted sons and daughters of the living God, to be able to worship you. Lord, this text is such good news. It's such a reminder of what you've done for us, even as your son did for the Gadarene demoniac. But Lord, it's also such good news for our neighbors, the ones who maybe just moved here from India or Pakistan, or Iran, or Iraq, who we rub shoulders with in our neighborhood, or our schools, 
or in our communities, in the grocery store. It's good news for the lost country of Japan and the lost country of India and the Middle East. Lord, help us to see how good it is for our neighbors. Help us to believe that total depravity is not the last word, but your irresistible grace is the final word for those that you have chosen to deliver out of sin and misery into life in Christ. Make this church a praying church, praying people. Make this church a group of members who really have confidence in your gospel and who will gladly embrace whatever financial, physical, societal cost it takes them to take the good news to the least and lost around them and in our world. Father, would you raise up men and women, boys and girls from this congregation to be missionaries to the hardest places in the world, to the places that are the most unreached with the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Lord, would you call them out and would you allow them to gladly face the danger because their hope is not in preserving their life, but gladly losing it for your sake in the gospels. Father, would you do a work in this church and in us that could only come from you? that we could truly say this is a work of the living God. We ask this in Jesus' name for his glory and our good. Amen.